This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Okay, so uh, this is my disclosure. I don't think it's actually relevant to what we're going to talk about today. It's also printed in your handout. I'm going to discuss off-label uses of uh, medications as well. Um, what I hope to do in the next uh, 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions and answers, is to uh, discuss um, the uh, advances in the diagnosis and management of patients who have cutaneous collagen vascular diseases, specifically lupus, uh, erythematosus, uh, dermatomyositis, and scleroderma. Uh, the variant of scleroderma that we'll talk about is a localized scleroderma. We're not going to talk about systemic sclerosis. As part of that, uh, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to design a plan that is appropriate for evaluating patients who have these diseases, and then you'll have some ideas on how to manage some of the patients who have uh, these three uh, disorders. Okay, so we have uh, four pre-questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, what is the difference between drug-induced uh, subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus and naturally occurring subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus? Is it that the patient is older? There are presence of antihistone antibodies. There's eosinophilia on biopsy. Uh, there are more women, or is it the presence of anti-Rho antibodies? So let's see. Okay. All right, now a second question for you all is, what is the wavelength of light that is responsible for exacerbating cutaneous lesions in patients who have dermatomyositis? Is it UVA, UVB, visible light, infrared light, or we don't know? Okay. All right. Third question. Which of the following antibodies is not present, not present in patients who have localized scleroderma? Antihistone antibodies, an antinuclear antibody, anti-single-stranded DNA, anti-topoisomerase, otherwise known as SCL70, or antiphospholipid antibodies? Okay. Okay, all of the following are true except for one of these statements. Antimalarial therapy has been shown to delay the progression of cutaneous lupus to systemic lupus. Two, uh, drug reactions to antimalarial drugs are more common in patients with dermatomyositis than they are in patients with lupus erythematosus. Three, retinopathy risk does not occur until after five years of therapy. Or four, antimalarial dosing should be based on the ideal body weight. Which of those are, which all of them are true except for which one? Yesterday. Okay, we're displaying that differently. Okay. Okay, so I think we do have some things to learn. Okay, so what I'm showing you here on this slide is a clinical spectrum of disease that occurs on the skin that is said to be specific. By specific, we mean that the biopsy will show an interface dermatitis uh, in these patients for lupus erythematosus. So on the upper left, you're seeing a patient who has chronic cutaneous discoid lupus. And in that image, I would like you to focus on the fact that there is sparing underneath the, um, underneath the nose. Uh, perhaps you can see that there's also sparing under the eyes. Uh, those are shaded areas. This is a disease which is a photosensitive disease. Even if the patient doesn't say, I am worse with sunlight, it is a photosensitive disease. In the middle, it's a little more difficult. Those are warty lesions that, um, that we might see in a 
patient who has cutaneous lupus, uh, this variant is known as hypertrophic lupus or verrucous lupus. And biopsies here are a little bit difficult to interpret because they may look like warts, they may look like, uh, they may look like keratoacanthomas or squamous cells, but the patient will have other disease elsewhere that is cutaneous lupus, and these are a variant of cutaneous lupus. On the upper right, we're seeing a patient who has a lesion of discoid lupus on the bridge of her nose. But if you look closely at the photograph, you can see that there's an asymmetry to her face, and it's sunken in on your left. Uh, and that is, uh, that is where her paniculitis is, which causes atrophy that can occur. The bottom uh, left is a patient who has annular lesions of subacucutaneous lupus. In the middle, it's a patient with subacucutaneous lupus that has papulosquamous lesions. And again, if you notice, there's a sparing of the interdigital web spaces. And that sparing is indicative of a, a photoprotected area and that's not as affected as uh, the other area. And again, noting that this is a photosensitive disease process. And on the lower right, we're looking at a patient who has acute cutaneous lupus erythematosus with a malar eruption. Um, there is a controversy. There is a condition that's known as tumid lupus erythematosus. And tumid lupus erythematosus overlaps with uh, reticulated erythematous mucinosis, and we're showing uh, pictures of patients who might be classified as having either. Perhaps the one on the upper right uh, where there's a reticulated area would be, uh, everybody would agree that perhaps that represents reticulated erythematous mucinosis. To me, these are, ent these are similar entities. Uh, they respond to antimalarials. The patients are photosensitive, but they don't show a, an interface dermatitis. Um, and so there, uh, it's a little more controversial whether it actually fits as part of the spectrum of cutaneous lupus. Now, it was first noted in the early 60s that uh, ultraviolet light was involved in the, uh, in the disease. And indeed, uh, there was a demonstration by these two dermatologists, Auerbach and, Auerbach and Weinstein, that they could uh, reproduce uh, disease uh, that was occupationally induced in their patients. Two years later, uh, a group out of San Francisco and LA uh, demonstrated that they could reproduce lesions of lupus with ultraviolet light. In 2001, Kuhn, who's a, a dermatologist in uh, Europe, uh, reported on their findings on uh, many patients who they phototested, and they found that with lupus erythematosus, both UVB and UVA irradiation could cause a, and could reproduce the phenomenon that we see on the skin. So the spectrum is broader than just UVB uh, in lupus erythematosus. And that means that that's going to inform us about what we need to do in terms of sun protective measures. So you can't rely on a high SPF, which, which affects primarily UVB, uh, to care for your patients. You need to uh, have a broad spectrum sunscreen, but better yet is to use sun protective clothing. Now, one of the things that I'm going to highlight, and I highlighted it with a question, was uh, the issue of drug-induced subacucutaneous lupus. That was first reported to occur in uh, 1985 in this report, which uh, came out of the University of Colorado. In that report, there were five patients who had subacucutaneous lupus. All of them were anti-Rho antibody, or otherwise known as SSA antibody, positive. And they, when they uh, took away the drug, which in this case was hydrochlorothiazide, uh, the disease re resolved in a period of uh, two to four weeks. Um, they had serology, which they had measured in some of their patients before and after, and they found that one of the patients had re resolution of the serologic abnormality. And they had an inadvertent rechallenge of a patient, um, which led to a reoccurrence of the disease, in this case with hydrochlorothiazide. Uh, in this study, which uh, appeared uh, about now oh, 15 years ago or so in, in, the, uh, in what's now called JAMA Dermatology, uh, a group from Johns Hopkins studied 70 patients who had subacucutaneous lupus that were Rho positive, and they found that of those 70, 15 had the disease occurring within six months of the time that a new drug had been started. So what that's telling us is that at least maybe a fifth of the patients, and perhaps even higher, uh, have disease that is caused by a drug. Well, that informs us when we're treating these patients that it would be better for us to take away the drugs that are causing or exacerbating the disease than to 
than to use other, other drugs to try and suppress disease, which can be, uh, can be improved by just taking away a drug. Um, in a report from, uh, from Rick Sondheimer, who's now at the University of Utah, they compared patients who had drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus to those with idiopathic in subacute cutaneous lupus, where it wasn't drug-related. And the only difference, really, is the age of the patient. So the patients are older who have, who have drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus. And that's not unpredictable, because the uh, patients who are older on, are usually on more uh, drugs. Um, the drugs that have been involved in this particular report, uh, they noted antihypertensives, antifungals, particularly terbenafine, a variety of chemotherapeutic agents, antihistamines, immunomodulators, and others. Subsequently, there have been some studies that have uh, looked at, at what drugs are involved. This one, which is a case-controlled study from Sweden, uh, found that about a third of the patients who had, had subacute cutaneous lupus, had that diagnosis, were linked to a drug. In this instance, the drug that was most linked was, or high, most highly linked, uh, was terbenafine, followed by anti-TNF agents, uh, anti-epileptics, and proton pump inhibitors. They didn't see the same risks in patients with other antihypertensives or diuretics uh, that others had seen. Now, their diagnosis wasn't validated. It is a chart review, uh, but it's, it's, it's a valid study, uh, suggesting that perhaps, though, a third of the patients are, are drug-related. Uh, Rick Sondheimer subsequently just published uh, this, this article. This is a uh, table out of the article uh, in the journal, the Derm Online Journal, um, which uh, basically shows the, the changes in the incidence of drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus reported uh, patients uh, between August of 2009 that led to that first uh, paper in August of 2000, in 2011, and it shows that there are uh, drugs which are more common and drugs which are less common. Um, this is based on reports in the literature. That's not a good way to uh, examine it. And this study, though, in a, which is a paper that's in the European Journal of Dermatology, looked at the experience of a group with 88 patients, and it looked at uh, the levels of um, the most common drugs that were precipitating it uh, in, at early times and then in later times, a, a decade, the first decade, um, more of the patients uh, were related to antihypertensives than they were in the second decade, but antihypertensives are still the same at the same level. Now, what I want to highlight in this is that we've, we've noted that proton pump inhibitors, you know some of those proton pump inhibitors are over-the-counter. The issue with proton pump inhibitors is that they cross-react. With antihypertensives, if you had a calcium channel blocker that was causing the disease and the patient was substituted another, anti, another calcium channel blocker, the disease doesn't necessarily re-exacerbate. On the other hand, with the proton pump inhibitors, uh, lansoprozole, omeprazole, uh, pantoprozole, uh, they all seem to cross-react. So if you notice that you have a patient and you've diagnosed drug-induced sub, uh, subacute cutaneous lupus, you uh, need to not only inform uh, them and other physicians that it's due to one of the proton pump inhibitors, but that they shouldn't use another proton pump inhibitor because the disease will come back. Um, we looked at, at actual tissue eosinophilia in the patients, and we found that there was no difference in tissue eosinophilia, so it's not a good marker for drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus. Now, drug, when you start talking to your colleagues, uh, if you have other PAs that you interact with, other physicians that you interact with who are in rheumatology, they don't quite understand the difference between drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus and drug-induced systemic lupus. There are drugs um, that can cause both, anti-TNF agents being one, but the serology is different. Uh, the patients who have drug-induced systemic lupus don't have skin disease, and they, uh, and they tend to have serositis, joint aches, uh, pleuritis, pericarditis, uh, whereas our patients who we see in dermatology have skin lesions, they don't have a lot of serologic uh, serositis, and their serologic uh, marker is the anti-Rho antibody whereas antihistone is associated with drug-induced systemic LE. Now, this was an interesting study that was uh, published in the New England Journal probably a decade ago now. We'll see the reference in a minute. But it was a prospective evaluation 
of, uh, they, they had prospective uh, frozen samples of patients who were diagnosed as having systemic lupus. And they had samples that dated back well before the time that they had any symptoms. And what they showed was that there was a, a gradual appearance of serologic abnormalities before there were any clinical signs. Some of the early clinical signs were joint aches, but also some of the early clinical signs in some of these patients were skin, was skin disease. And so they, uh, they basically showed there was a, a progressive appearance of, uh, of antibody abnormalities and an insidious onset of systemic disease that developed over a period from the first symptom till they developed full-blown systemic lupus, the full criteria for that, of about a year and a half. And so the concept is that you go from normal immunity to benign autoimmunity to a pathogenic autoimmunity and then to clinical illness, and that there are genetic influences and perhaps environmental influences to that. So now how do we make a diagnosis of cutaneous LE? It's based really on clinical morphology, the distribution of the lesions, the fact that they're in a photosensitive distribution many times, and the histopathology. We do serologic testing, but serologic testing is not really part of the diagnosis or the exclusion of alternative diagnoses. And immunofluorescence in these patients, I think, is, is generally not needed. It is a rare patient that I will perform an immunofluorescent biopsy on in a patient who has, uh, who has cutaneous lesions of lupus. The purpose of evaluating a patient who we then make a diagnosis of cutaneous lupus is to assess whether or not they have systemic disease. And uh, that will help us predict their prognosis. The most important tests are doing a CBC and getting tests of renal function, and particularly the urinalysis to see if they have proteinuria or hematuria or casts in their urine. We do serologic testing initially, but as we follow patients, we rarely should be doing additional serologic testing. ANAs are almost always positive in systemic lupus. A negative ANA uh, pretty much rules out the possibility that the patient has systemic lupus. While the anti-Rho antibody I've mentioned in subacute cutaneous lupus, it's present in other conditions. It's, it's also present in patients um, who are otherwise healthy. It is rarely positive in patients who have dermatomyositis. So if it's positive in a patient that you thought had dermatomyositis, rethink the diagnosis. And the antihistone antibody is quite nonspecific. It occurs in patients who have drug-induced uh, systemic lupus. Uh, it's, it occurs in localized scleroderma patients. We'll see that again later on when we talk about localized scleroderma. Anti-SM antibody and anti-native DNA seem to be uh, specific for systemic lupus. And if they're positive, that, that suggests that they have systemic disease. And then cutaneous immunofluorescence, I already mentioned, is something that I rarely, if ever, do in our patients, particularly when the lesions are clinically and pathologically characteristic. When they're not, then perhaps immunofluorescence of a lesion will be helpful, as opposed to a blistering condition where immunofluorescence, you need to not do a lesion, you need to do something that is normal skin near where the lesions are. As we repeat evaluations, the most important things to do are, the, are a CBC and a urinalysis. Of course, evaluating a new symptom that the patient has, but as I mentioned earlier, repeated serologic testing is probably uh, not of any practical use, and it is costly. Um, the goals in managing patients are to reassure the patient. The patient these patients tend to have disease, uh, the ones that we see tend to have disease that's localized to the skin. Uh, it's my contention that we should not be sending our patients for management uh, to rheumatologists. We in dermatology should be the ones who are caring for skin disease. Um, it's to improve the patient's appearance, to prevent the formation of new lesions, of discoloration or of atrophy, and, to, and there are very few, if any, double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have been used with any of the agents that, we, that we're going to discuss. Um, how do we do it? Well, we start with topical therapy, and, the, and one of the cornerstones is to use uh, anti, uh, sunscreens and photoprotection. Uh, it's been noted that patients who smoke have a uh, less hearty response to antimalarials, or perhaps their disease is more aggressive to begin with. It really doesn't really make any difference to me whether or not uh, smoking 
worsens disease or doesn't worsen disease. I do believe it does. I do believe it makes the antimalarials less effective, but it doesn't really make any difference because smoking is known to be um, an adverse uh, effect on your health. And so to me, they, the patient who smokes, regardless of whether they have lupus or not, should stop smoking. But in this instance, it may give you a reason uh, to tell the patient, well, your lupus may be better if you'll stop smoking. And then sometimes they actually will listen and do that. If you're going to maximize their photoprotection, you would need to consider whether or not vitamin D and calcium are uh, useful. And then for topical therapies, uh, corticosteroids and calcineurin inhibitors, both of the existing calcineurin inhibitors are, are effective, and the corticosteroid should be chosen based upon the site that you're treating. Uh, and, the, uh, and so you'll choose a lotion or a solution for the scalp, a weaker topical steroid on the face, and stronger lesions if you have stronger topical steroids if you have hypertrophic lesions or elsewhere. One of the cornerstones is to use an antimalarial, and antimalarials actually have been shown to impede the progress of cutaneous lupus to patients who might otherwise develop systemic disease. And we use either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Both are now available. Again, they're back on the market. I don't use, I personally don't use quinacrine. Uh, if you hear other people speak about it, uh, it is an uh, antimalarial which could be combined with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. The reason I don't use it is because there is, there's no, uh, it has to be compounded, and there is no labeled indication in humans uh, to using quinacrine, so I, I tend not to use it. Uh, rarely I'll use uh, uh, short-term systemic steroids, and when antimalarials fail, then we'll talk about using uh, azathioprine, methotrexate, mycophenolate, uh, thalidomide, or even pretend, potentially there may be some biologic therapies that become available. This was a corollary to the, to the study that I talked about where the disease progressed from uh, benign autoimmunity to patho pathogenic autoimmunity to clinical disease. And in this instance, these uh, authors observed that patients who were treated earlier in their course with antimalarials had a slower progression to developing full-blown uh, systemic lupus. And so antimalarial therapy should be used, I think, relatively early in patients who have uh, cutaneous lupus. Uh, this is a before and after. I'll show you, uh, obviously, successful pictures. There's uh, not a lot of uh, toxicity that occurs. One of the things that we worry most about are, is ocular toxicity, and the one that's not reversible potentially is retinopathy. So uh, chloroquine is more retino, uh, retinopathy, uh, has more retin potential for retinopathy than does hydroxychloroquine. But study, recent studies in the ophthalmology literature have suggested that antimalarial retinopathy isn't going to occur until the patient has at least five years of therapy. In addition, uh, the recent recommendations are that we base the uh, dosing of, of the antimalarials on the patient's actual weight, not the ideal body weight. And that's highlighted in this article, which was published uh, just this past year. So baseline examination should be done, and then annual screening should begin at five years. Now, I don't do that. I do annual screening beginning after I have the patient on antimalarials. I think it's, it's too, patients uh, can get away from us, and, uh, and then maybe at five years they're not beginning their annual screening. Um, the testing that should be done are listed here, and that's an ophthalmologist that would be doing that, that type of testing. Thalidomide works. Uh, this is a patient where I use thalidomide. You can see that we've tapered the dose to 50 milligrams every other day, and it keeps her clear of her disease. Azathioprine can work in this before and after in this particular patient. Uh, this is from the literature, mycophenolate. You can see the before and afters. On the left, it's uh, left and right, and the, uh, on the right panel, it's uh, up and down. Uh, this is a patient where ustekinumab was used. Uh, the patient had concurrent uh, psoriasis and the hypertrophic lesions of lupus resolved as well. And so this is my therapeutic ladder. It, I think I have put it in the handout, so you should have it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, on this. And we'll move on to uh, dermatomyositis. These are, uh, this is a uh, collage or whatever of uh, patients who have dermatomyositis. On the upper left, when you look at that, that looks like malar erythema. You could confuse it for, for lupus. But when you look at, if, you, if you're close enough, you see that his eyelids are a little bit edematous, and he has, he has dermatomyositis. It is a photosensitive disease as well, but we don't know the wavelength of light that uh, causes this or that exacerbates it. 
Uh, in the center, we're seeing a typical heliotrope rash. The heliotrope rash on the upper right is uh, with edema. On the middle left, we're seeing what's called the shawl sign, as though somebody were wearing a shawl on their back. It's a poikiloderma that affects that area. On the middle panel, we're seeing a patient who has a disease in the scalp, which is extraordinarily pruritic. It mimics seborrhea or psoriasis. On the uh, panel on the uh, middle right, we're seeing uh, Gottron's papules. Um, the poikiloderma on the anterior chest on the lower left panel. On the lower middle panel, we're seeing what's called the holster sign. It's a poikiloderma that's occurring, papular pruritic eruption that's occurring on the lateral aspects of the thighs. And then on the uh, lower right, we're seeing cuticular overgrowth and uh, periungal lesions that can be appreciated without a dermoscope. If you can't appreciate them without a dermoscope, if you take your dermoscope and look at them closely, you'll often see telangiectasias in the uh, nail folds. UV is involved here, but we don't know uh, what wavelength actually exacerbates the disease because people have not been able to reproduce it in the laboratory setting. Uh, but we know that, uh, that UV intensity correlates with a higher risk of disease and a higher risk of autoantibodies. Uh, that UV light stimulates expression of the antibody uh, MI2, and that uh, ultraviolet exposure has been associated with exacerbations of uh, autoantibodies in patients who have uh, juvenile myositis. It's a systemic disease. It, it's called dermatomyositis, which means skin muscle inflammation. But the patients often have arthritis. They may have esophageal involvement, and it can be distal or proximal. Uh, they may have pulmonary disease. And if they have pulmonary disease that's uh, rapidly progressive, there are a certain number of patients who have that. Uh, that's, a very, uh, uh, that's a very poor prognostic sign. Uh, in addition, if they had symptomatic cardiac disease, uh, it's associated with a poor prognosis. Uh, there is comorbidity. This, like all of the diseases, you heard mention of hidradenitis and psoriasis this morning, and and that they are inflammatory uh, diseases and that they may be associated with comorbid uh, disease. Uh, dermatomyositis and probably lupus are also associated with these risks uh, of uh, comorbid diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease. Um, malignancy is associated with dermatomyositis, not so much scleroderma or with lupus. And these patients, somewhere between uh, a fifth and a quarter of the patients will have had or will have or will develop a cancer. Usually it's within a short period of time of the diagnosis. So if the patient is three years post first symptoms, not necessarily diagnosis because sometimes the symptoms are, the diagnosis is delayed. The skin disease occurs, people think they have lupus erythematosus. Eventually it's diagnosis dermatomyositis. It's, you measure it not from the time that you make the actual diagnosis, but from the time that the symptoms first occurred. It's usually within two to three years of that. After that, there's the risk lowers to uh, the risk in the general population. We don't tend to see patients who have polymyositis, but those patients may have a slight increase in risk of cancer. But our patients that we see who don't have muscle disease, which, which is called amyopathic dermatomyositis, that's ADM, uh, those patients also may have cancer, probably at the same levels, but it's not well, as well worked out as it is with patients who have classic dermatomyositis with skin and muscle disease. And this is a graph from one of the papers uh, basically illustrating that there's a peak at the time of diagnosis. There are patients who have disease before, patients who have cancer afterwards, but the rate uh, compared to the normal population is, uh, is really peaks at, the, at, at and around the time of diagnosis. And again, this graphic highlights that there may be a preceding malignancy, a concurrent malignancy, or a subsequent malignancy. Obviously, when you make the diagnosis, we're looking for concurrent malignancies, and that occurs in about maybe somewhere between 5 and 10% of patients, maybe. Once you make that diagnosis of malignancy, though, a perineoplastic course where you take the malignancy away or it's treated effectively may occur, but it does, I would say that's the rare, rare patient. It's not a, but, but noticing the malignancy and having that adequately addressed is important in our patients. It appears that ovarian cancer is overrepresented in women and in Southeast Asia, which we don't practice in, I think you're all from the US, uh, basically nasopharyngeal carcinoma is overrepresented. That doesn't seem to be true for 
uh, people who are born and raised, in, you know, who are from Southeast Asia but are in the United States. It seems to be true when they are living in Southeast Asia. Um, the purpose of evaluating our patients with dermatomyositis is to rule out other causes of skin disease or myopathy to assess the possibility of systemic disease, assess particularly uh, malignancy, and then assess the severity of the condition. Um, there is not a consensus about how this should be done. I'll show you my approach in a minute. This is a study which suggested you could replace all the traditional cancer screening with a PET-CT scan. Uh, it's not been replicated uh, in any subsequent uh, publication, so it sits out there as the only publication. What I tend to do in patients once I make a diagnosis of dermatomyositis is to get a barium swallow to assess for esophageal dysmotility, to do pulmonary function tests, and those should include diffusion studies, and to have the patient have an electrocardiogram. Uh, I don't do anything beyond that in terms of cardiac evaluation unless they have symptoms or they have palpitations. Malignancies uh, I assess with uh, chest x-ray CTs of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. A stool hematest, and that's for basically all patients, mammograms that need to be up to date, pelvic ultrasound, CT of the pelvis in women, and then it's repeated annually for a period of about three years following the onset of diagnosis. And it might be repeated again if the patient is in remission and then relapses. There's all sorts of talk about a variety of autoantibodies that are supposed to be specific for myositis. I find them to not be clinically useful. There's, a, there's several reasons. One, it's very difficult to get many of them, particularly the, uh, the latter three, the MDA5, the NXP, and the TF, TIF1 uh, gamma. Uh, those are not available in commercial laboratories that are reliable. So, you make a diagnosis, you assess the patient, and I don't think these autoantibodies help in a practical sense in any, in any particular manner. Now that supposes to my colleague, if, if you were hearing from Dave Fiorentino, who is at Stanford, uh, he believes that there are subsets that we can uh, utilize these autoantibodies to make, but he basically has collaborated with people at Johns Hopkins because they're the only ones who reliably do these autoantibodies, and they don't do it on a commercial basis. And so for me, the autoantibody testing is not particularly practical. So what do I do for my patients? It's similar but slightly different from uh, what we uh, do in, uh, in cutaneous lupus. We start with sun protective measures, even though we don't know the wavelength of light that is causing it. And then uh, we change, ask them to change their behavior. You know, they shouldn't go out in the midday sun. They, they should use sunscreens. They should use protective clothing. And again, if you're using maximizing their sun protection, you ought to think about whether or not they need to be supplemented with vitamin D uh, and calcium. Topical steroids, calcineurin inhibitors, they are, uh, they are slightly helpful in these patients. These patients are actually quite miserable, more miserable um, uh, as miserable on the quality of life index as the patients with hidradenitis that you heard about earlier. Um, they uh, itch, uh, they itch even after, they, after seemingly the uh, lesions get better. Antimalarials are an early therapy if the patient doesn't have muscle disease, because antimalarials have no effect on the muscle disease. And with antimalarials in this condition though, there is a risk of the patient developing a drug eruption about one out of five patients will develop a drug eruption, so it precludes you to, if you're going to prescribe hydroxychloroquine, to warn them about that. Now, it's usually not a serious drug eruption, but it's to the patient, they get very excited about it, and then you have to use some corticosteroids to calm it down, uh, topical and systemic. So um, at least warn them about it uh, and before you uh, prescribe the antimalarials. When you do prescribe antimalarials in either of these two conditions that we've just talked about, it takes at least two to three months before you see a response. So that's the other thing. You have to sit with the patient and say, this isn't going to be immediately effective. Uh, you're gonna, you know, it's going to take a while uh, because the patients will call you back a week later and say, hey, it's not working, doc. You know, what should I do? Uh, and uh, then we move on. If we're treating systemic disease and they have some subtle muscle disease, then methotrexate is usually my next stop. Uh, others would flip it and say mycophenolate mofetil would be the next stop. It, it really, there's no head-to-head -head studies we don't know. And then intravenous immune globulin, there are a variety of other agents, and you don't see systemic corticosteroids on this list. 
That's because systemic corticosteroids, it works for the muscle disease, but it works very poorly for the skin disease. I see too many patients who are referred to me um, who have been on systemic steroids in doses that are causing them side effects that have had very little effect on their skin. And we're all, almost always trying to get them off of those agents. So um, antimalarial therapy, it, it's, there's only open label studies. It's not considered a labeled use uh, in this particular instance. Uh, it has no beneficial effects on myopathy and there's a risk of a drug eruption. This is the patient who responded quite well to antimalarial therapy. Uh, this is a patient who I told, oh, don't worry, I'm not gonna give you those noxious uh, systemic steroids. And uh, it's before and after, uh, they're taken about uh, five or six days apart. And you can see that she has disease which has now covered her body in five days. Uh, that's due to her antimalarial drug reaction. So about a fifth of the patients have that happen. Uh, this was a study that we did uh, that was published uh, a number of years ago in uh, the archives of dermatology and basically it showed that about a fifth of the patients and that was statistically different from lupus erythematosus. There's some cross-reactivity with chloroquine um, and as I said, this was uh, published, I guess now 15 years ago. Methotrexate may be beneficial and it's in doses that are usually 20 to 30 milligrams per week. Uh, and I should uh, tell you that at least it's, this is, I think, uh, when you get above 15 milligrams per week and you're giving it orally, you should split the dose. So the dose of 25 milligrams given as 10 2.5 milligram tablets all in one dose is probably, you're probably, the absorption is not 25 milligrams. So if you split the dose after you get above six pills of the 2.5 milligram variant, uh, it's, it's, it uh, in, improves the ability of the medicine to work because it's absorbed more effectively. So you can split it morning and night or two subsequent uh, days. This is a patient who responded well to mycophenolate mofetil. This, uh, this is a patient with, who's on 1.5 grams uh, twice daily. And this is a patient before and after IVIG. Uh, this IVIG, by the way, in this disease is given on a monthly basis and it's given as two grams per kilogram split between two to four days. So the patient gets two grams per kilogram monthly. By the way, that is extraordinarily costly. Uh, and then this is, this is my therapeutic ladder. I've sort of already been through this and there are other agents that are listed there. Rituximab, in my uh, opinion, in my experience, has not worked for skin disease in patients with either cutaneous lupus or with uh, dermatomyositis. So the third disease we're gonna talk about is illustrated by this young woman who has uh, what's called oncudesab. That's the uh, strike of the sword. It's on her scalp. You see the uh, hair loss. It's in a linear pattern with a little bit of hyperpigmentation. But when you look at her face on the left, you can see the asymmetry. And so she has a facial hemiatrophy. Um, you can see that her chin is, uh, on your right, her chin is uh, smaller than the left portion of her chin. And when we ask her to open her mouth, you can see that her tongue is asymmetric as well on that same side. So she has facial hemiatrophy with oncudesab. It's a variant of localized scleroderma or morphia. In this instance, she had a positive ANA. She had a positive single-stranded DNA, which is a marker that occurs, it's not specific, but it occurs more frequently in patients with uh, with uh, localized sclerodermomorphia. Uh, and, uh, and so she has uh, what's called Peri-Romberg disease or facial hemiatrophy. So localized scleroderma, it's different than systemic sclerosis. It's otherwise known as morphia. And there are variants. There's linear scleroderma, linear morphia. Some people will call it that. Uh, lichen sclerosis, I think, is part and parcel of the disease process. And so if you have a patient who you make a diagnosis of linear scleroderma on, it precludes you to do a complete examination, including the examination of the genitalia, because sometimes they have lesions of lichen sclerosis on the genitalia. I think Peri-Romberg is a variant of localized scleroderma. There is a bullous variant, which is quite rare, and then there are some patients who have generalized morphia. Uh, it, isn't, it still isn't systemic sclerosis. Systemic disease is very rare. It's possible, but it isn't as common. In patients who have systemic sclerosis, they frequently have esophageal involvement. They frequently have pulmonary fibrosis. Um, 
with our patients, uh, the disease, uh, the systemic disease that occurs, those types of systemic disease are very rare. This isn't a disease as opposed to lupus, where we have cutaneous lupus and the patient may progress to systemic lupus. This is not a disease where you say, well, they have morphia, localized scleroderma, and that at some later date, they're likely to have systemic sclerosis. That is not the case here. These patients don't have disease that progresses to systemic sclerosis. Uh, serologic abnormalities, if, if they have active serology, positive serologies, it probably predicts a more prolonged course, but it's not clear that that is the case. And those patients who have the facial hemiatrophy or who have Ankudasab might have underlying neurologic abnormalities, seizure disorder or other abnormalities uh, on that, uh, on that, with that effect as well. And we have very few uh, trials that have tested any therapies. So I've already sort of mentioned this, uh, ANA is common, anti-single-stranded DNA is common, antihistone antibodies occur in about half the patients. There's an anti-topoisomerase 2 antibody, that is not anti-topoisomerase 1. And anti-topoisomerase 1, anti-SCL70 is a marker of systemic scleroderma, systemic sclerosis. And antihistone antibodies may also occur in these patients. This is an algorithm that, um, that was uh, published in, uh, in the German literature. It basically suggests if you have a very localized area, you might treat it topically. Uh, otherwise, uh, you might use uh, ultraviolet therapy. I don't find that UVB is very effective, and we don't use uh, PUVA therapy anymore. And in our institution, we do not have UVA1. Um, and so I generally move on to methotrexate with or without systemic corticosteroids. Uh, if you read the morphia literature, I'd say more of our colleagues who write about this are using systemic pulses of systemic steroids given on a monthly basis along with weekly methotrexate. So um, here's that in a, in a different format. Okay. Okay, so we briefly have uh, looked at uh, some of the collagen vascular diseases that have prominent uh, cutaneous manifestations. Uh, most of the patients are see, should be seen in dermatologic practices. Most of the ones that we see have a relatively benign course, unless they have other associated systemic disease. And I think successful management is possible. Okay, let's look again at our questions that we started with. So what is the difference between drug-induced subacute cutaneous lupus and naturally occurring subacute cutaneous lupus? Is it the older patient, the presence of antihistone antibodies, tissue eosinophilia, female gender, or the presence of the anti-Rho antibody? Okay, so 10 seconds here. Let's see what... Okay, and that's the correct answer. So that we at least got half of you uh, answering correctly. Uh, and uh, that, in comparison, we had very few of you who answered that correctly at the beginning. Um, so somebody learned something. Okay, what about this? What wavelength of light is responsible for exacerbating cutaneous lesions of dermatomyositis? Is it UVA, UVB, visible light, infrared, or we don't know? Okay, most of you heard that. And in the beginning, you didn't know. So you have learned something. But remember, we need to photoprotect these patients, even though we don't know what the wavelength is. Okay, which of the following antibodies is not present in patients who have localized scleroderma? Is it antihistone antibody, ANAs, anti-single-stranded DNA, anti-topoisomerase, otherwise known as SCL70, or anti-phospholipid antibodies. Okay, well. <laughs> what can I say? It, it, the, it's, it, there's a higher frequency of the right answer, but we're all spread all over the place. Well, here's how you did in comparison. 
So uh, you know, only 14% of you answered it correctly in the beginning, and now 33% uh, of you are answering it correctly. But hopefully you'll take this home having learned uh, that from these questions. All right, and then what about which of the following are true? Everything's true except for one. Antimalarial therapy has been shown to delay the progression of cutaneous lupus to systemic lupus. Um, drug reactions to antimalarial agents are more common in patients with dermatomyositis than in patients with lupus. And retinopathy doesn't occur until after five years of therapy or antimalarial dosing should be based on ideal body weight. So which one of those is false, okay? We're looking for the one that is not true. Okay, so majority, over majority, got this one right. And in comparison, yes, indeed, some people learned something, so very good. Okay, then we have, uh, let's see, we have evaluations, which uh, are not gonna be displayed, so. The overall performance of the speaker. I heard Ted was uh, saying that you should uh, give him some particular grade or something earlier. I wasn't here for Ted's talk, though, so. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? Okay, and then we have questions. Okay, so I read the questions. Okay, progression of SCLE to SLE if a patient asks about the risk of progression. Okay, so about, about half of the patients who have subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus actually are, are, you're able to classify them as having systemic lupus at the time that they're diagnosed based upon one, the skin lesions, two, uh, positive ANA, three, they usually have some other serologic involvement, th four, they're photosensitive, and occasionally they have leukopenia. Um, they don't tend to have severe systemic disease though. So even though they already have or may progress to be classified as having systemic lupus, the risk, the really the, the question should be about what's the risk of them developing renal disease or CNS disease if they have subacute cutaneous lupus. And what I'm gonna tell you is that it's, it's a rare phenomenon. So uh, again, you should probably say to the patient with discoid lupus as well as subacute cutaneous lupus, even though you have some of these features of systemic disease, um, it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not a, uh, it's, it doesn't mean that, it, it's unlikely that you're going to have uh, renal involvement or CNS involvement. Uh, no, dermatomyositis is a clinically suspected uh, diagnosis, but, um, but it should, you should have a biopsy. Now the issue with the biopsy in dermatomyositis is when you send it to the pathologist, if you didn't tell them it was dermatomyositis and you suggested to them, is this dermatomyositis or is this lupus? Because that's a, one of the major differentials or is it you know, uh, psoriasis? Because sometimes the dermatomyositis lesions look psoriatic. Uh, if you tell them, is it psoriasis or is it one of these collagen vascular diseases, they'll, they'll, they'll correctly tell you that it's a collagen vascular disease. If you ask them, is it lupus or dermatomyositis, they can't tell. The pathology looks identical. But you do need the pathology to say that it's indeed not eczema, not psoriasis. So the pathology is helpful. Uh, okay, uh, sorry, I missed it. Uh, do you perform cancer screening for dermatomyositis patients? Yes. Um, that's on one of the slides. It's in, it should be in your handout. I'm pretty sure that you, you got a handout. Um, I, do the, I do a workup uh, which, is, which occurs when I make the diagnosis, assuming that the diagnosis is made within a relatively short time of the onset of the symptoms. Uh, if the patient has had disease that they've been told it's uh, lupus for, uh, you know, for three, four years, and you then make a diagnosis of dermatomyositis, it probably isn't necessary to do an extensive malignancy workup because it's, the rate of malignancy is the increased rate uh, or frequency or prevalence of malignancy occurs uh, at, at and around the time of the first uh, symptoms. 
Uh, what about workup for a systemic disease and morphia? I tried to highlight that it's very rare. So unless they have symptoms, there's uh, very little workup that should be done other than a CBC and, uh, and maybe some serologic testing. Um, and what do you tell? I don't, I don't, that does, what do I tell? Hmm. I, I tell jokes sometimes, you know. Uh, yeah, that was good that you guys figured that it was a joke. Okay. What lab monitoring do you do and how frequent to screen for SLE in patients with uh, cutaneous lupus? Um, I usually monitor them with uh, labs about twice a year and do a CBC and a urinalysis. That's it. Uh, I don't, do ser don't repeat serologic testing after they've had it done at the onset. How do you monitor for signs or symptoms? Uh, history, uh, CBC, and, uh, and a urinalysis. What do you tell patients with tumid lupus or REM about their prognosis? Okay, those patients who have tumid lupus have been, um, rarely have been shown to have uh, or to develop systemic LE. Uh, and so you tell them that uh, this is a disease that's primarily of the skin. We're gonna treat it as though you have lupus. We're gonna treat it with antimalarials and topical steroids and sun protection. And usually almost all the patients respond to that who have tumid lupus. Um, okay. Uh, prednisone, uh, does it have an impact, or, or the uh, methotrexate or mycophenolate, does it have an impact on serology? To our knowledge, no. Uh, the serology will still be positive, particularly uh, anti-Rho antibodies may stay positive. It doesn't have much effect on it at all. Okay, I received a pathology with interface dermatitis consistent with tumid lupus. Okay, actually, uh, if, they, if they said that, it, it's probably not correct, because uh, tumid lupus is uh, the histologic features are, um, can we go back to that question? Keep it going down. Yeah, leave it right there. Uh, the tumid lupus, the, histo the histopathology doesn't show an interface dermatitis. The interface is spared in tumid lupus. Uh, if the interface, if it's an interface dermatitis, it's probably actually subacute cutaneous lupus or discoid lupus, something like that. Tumid lupus, it's a deeper uh, lymphocytic infiltrate. It may be periappendageal, and there is a lot of mucin in the, that's deposited. And REM and uh, tumid lupus are often confused histopathologically as well as clinically. They're not interface dermatoses, though, Okay. Um, okay, any suggestions for treatment of localized morphia over a joint, which is, yes, okay, so that, I didn't mention that, and that's a very good question. Uh, when you have a patient who has a linear disease that's over a joint, one of the uh, things that needs to be done is to set them up with uh, physical therapy. Um, that will limit the progression of the disease and may uh, increase the range of motion, so that is, is very important. And those patients should probably be treated uh, much more aggressively, uh, treatment with methotrexate, with or without uh, pulses of corticosteroids. Punch biopsies, um, okay, so do you prefer punch biopsies? Yeah, punch biopsies in, uh, in these diseases are just fine. Um, uh, in, even, even in morphia, you can get deep enough to get a reasonable, di reasonable diagnosis. Uh, certainly in, uh, in dermatomyositis and lupus, punch biopsy is perfect. Uh, do you need to do more than one? Uh, probably not. If you have an interface dermatitis, you've chosen the site wisely. It probably, uh, probably works just fine to, to do just one biopsy. Um, you can do more than one. If you, if you had lesions of different morphology, it might be, might be helpful. Um, it sometimes it's helpful to do a scalp biopsy because it, uh, the scalp in dermatomyositis looks, the biopsy results look like an interface dermatitis, whereas the diseases that we're considering are um, is it uh, seborrhea or is it, uh, is it psoriasis? And those diseases are histopathologically quite different. Any other questions? Or did we, we capture all the questions? Anybody else has questions? I'll be here probably until the lunch and then I'm, uh, and then I'm gone. I'm uh, uh, out of here because I don't have any other talks to give. So if you need to catch me, catch me at, uh, at, at the break. Uh, or in the lunch session. Thank you. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.